morning, everybody. Let's, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its clear reading this morning. We thank you that it is true. And as we've been reminded already, we can trust it. But as we pray, Lord, I'm reminded that my words are not um, infallible. My words are weak. But I'm reminded also that your words are strong and powerful and you can work in our hearts. So I do pray, Lord, that as we now look at the meaning of these words, Lord, your spirit will be amongst us, drawing us to your truth, challenging our hearts, and bringing us to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. An interesting question to ask as we kind of go on as, as, as a church, as a worldwide church, and um, is this, what is the greatest problem that is facing the church today? And we may have lots of different answers depending on whereabouts in the world we live. Um, I'm, I'm guessing if I was to ask you that question, uh, being in, in Western um, United Kingdom at this time, you might think, well, you know, that one of the biggest problems we're facing is a battle for truth. And so being able to stand up and speak the truth in a world that is in a position, in opposition to God's word. And that is indeed a problem and a growing problem. But at the moment, we do have freedom to preach the gospel. But actually, that is not our biggest problem. In today's passage, we are reminded of two huge problems that every Christian in the world faces. And we are pointed to the one who can help us. So the, the two problems are this. We turn the authority of God upside down. We turn the authority of God upside down. And the second one is, evil comes from inside. Evil comes from inside out. We turn the authority of God upside down, and evil comes from from inside out. And we'll look at the solution a little bit later. But let's have a look at that first point. We turn the authority of God upside down. Hand washing in my house is, is a relatively challenging thing. And it might be in your house too if you've got young children. Um, I've got a little boy who's nearly five, five next week. His name is Noah. And he just doesn't like washing his hands before he eats. So we have this routine most days. Where we'll say, Noah, will you go and wash your hands? So he says, yes, I'll go wash my hands before we eat. So he goes off and he, and he goes off and you hear the tap running. He's in there for a period of time. And then he comes back a little bit later. You say, have you washed your hands? And he'll say, yes, daddy, smell my hand. And you smell his hand, and it smells like soap. But it's still filthy. Basically, what my son does is he runs into the bathroom, he turns the tap on, he puts a little bit of soap in his hands, and he rubs his hand really hard. And he waits just long enough for it to be convincing that he's washed his hands. And then he comes back after turning the tap off. What's funny is that if he just washed his hands, it would be twice as quick. But he doesn't. And we know this goes on. But you know, if you're a parent, you might have sympathy with the Pharisees here in this passage as they complain about house washing, hand washing. But but actually, that's not what's going on here. It's not just about eating your food before you eat. There's a deeper problem going on. You see, the Pharisees had rules, and they were called the tradition of the elders. Now, these traditions of the elders, they were, were teachings added on to the Bible's teachings that were taught by Um, respected leaders. And and they were given, uh, and they had a weight amongst the people. You know, if you wanted to know how holy you were, you would look at how well you kept these rules, how well you followed the tradition of the elders. It repeats that phrase a number of times in the passage in verse 2 and in verse 5. 
And the specific hand-washing tradition they're talking about here was this idea that once you've been into the marketplace filled with lots of people who you don't know, bumped shoulders with all different kinds of people, maybe you accidentally, without knowing it, rubbed shoulders with a Gentile. Or maybe with a Syrophoenician woman. Maybe you, you touched some food that was, was unclean. Well, just in case, to make sure you're okay, when you come back, ceremonially wash your hands. And maybe wash your kettles and your cooking utensils as well, ceremonially. Just in case, to make sure that, you, that you're holy and you haven't been infected. So they bring this complaint to Jesus. And they say, why don't your disciples wash their hands ceremonially? Why do they disrespect the teaching of the elders? So Jesus gives them a reply, and it's not the reply they're expecting. In verse 6, he says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their, um, Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus holds nothing back. He immediately goes back to a prophecy that was written down 700 years before, and he applies it straight to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Because he is looking right into their hearts, and he's diagnosing their problem. And he goes on to diagnose their problem as the verse goes on. And this is the key point. They are hypocrites because, in verse 8, they have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions. They've let go of God's word and instead are holding man's word in higher regard. And Jesus gives them one concrete example. He goes on and he talks about um, children caring for their parents. And he gives this this example of Corbin. So, I mean, in in God's word in the Old Testament, children are supposed to care for their parents in in old age. That that was a sign, that that was what God intended. That parents, children were to to honor their mother and father. And actually breaking this rule in God's eyes was so heinous that it was a capital punishment. It was, it was such an important thing to God that it held the death penalty. God's really clear on this issue in the Old Testament. But you might imagine that looking after your parents in your old age is a rather expensive business, and it wasn't a very popular thing to believe. So the tradition of the elders comes in and helps you out. You basically say to the, 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 your family, to your parents, and in the sight of the, the community, all I would have spent on you, I declare as Corbin, which literally means I, I, I am, I'm, I'm separating that aside for God's use. I'm not going to use it on you. I'm going to use it on the temple. But then you don't necessarily go and spend that money on the temple. You may use some of it for that. But basically what, what happens is this rule, Corbin, nullifies the word of God, which is what Jesus says. It nullifies the word of God in, in verse 13. They make God's word as if it's nothing. And as they do it, it it deals with their guilty conscience. It makes them look all right on the outside before the community. Look how holy, look how spiritual they are. But what they're doing is they're disregarding the words of God. The danger of Bible learners and Bible teachers is that we could nullify the word of God. You know, these teachers of the law would have held the Bible, if you'd have asked them, in in, in really high regard. Probably would have sounded very evangelical, actually. You know, you'd say, do you believe in the authority of Scripture? 
I'm sure the Pharisees would put their hands up. Yes, absolutely. Do you believe it's reliable? Yes, absolutely. Do you believe it's clear? Yes, absolutely. They would have believed all those things about the Bible. Yet still, when they come to it, and they find tricky or inconvenient parts, they are able to find a good teacher who can teach them what the Bible really means. Teach them to understand it in a way that makes sense to them, that that gets around these tricky problems, that would ease their guilty conscience. And so they would then embrace such teaching. And this is a problem in the Christian church today. And the danger is that this is a problem inside our hearts as well. You see, the Christian church is awash with diverse teaching. You know, you could pretty much believe anything you want, and then you can go and find a Christian teacher who will teach that to you. You can do that. If you don't like what the Bible says about sin, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, if you really are uncomfortable with that subject, I can recommend, or I won't recommend, five, six books that you can read that will tell you that actually sin isn't really a problem. That God loves everyone despite the way we act. If you don't like the the doctrine of hell, I guarantee I can name ten books that you can go and buy in a Christian bookshop today that will tell you that it doesn't exist and you don't really need to worry about it. If you don't like the idea that that, that the Bible teaches about complementarianism, that that, that that, that churches should be led by men, if you struggle with that as a concept, you really don't want to believe that, then you can find thousands of books on that subject. They're all over the place. Maybe you don't want to come to church on a Sunday. Maybe you don't feel that it's important to be gathered with God's people. I'm sure you could find hundreds of books that will help you in that way. Maybe you don't like the idea of suffering or sacrificing for the gospel. I could lead you to many a Christian TV channel with many a fine-looking preacher who will tell you that God does not want you to suffer. He does not want you to be poor. In fact, he wants you to be rich. You can find all those things out there. In fact, you don't even need to go to a Christian bookshop. You can find those things with a click of a mouse and a quick search on Google. If you want to believe that stuff, if you want a teacher who will teach you those things, you will find a tradition of man or a teaching of men that that will feed you what you want to hear. And the Bible warns us in 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want them to hear. The time will come. I always say the time is now. And the time has been that way for a very long time. One of our greatest dangers as a church today, as the whole people of God, is that we have a tendency, all people have a tendency, to nullify the Word of God. We, on on the one hand, as evangelicals, will revere it and say, we believe it. We absolutely, the Bible has authority. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that the Bible would have authority. If it's God's Word, if God speaks, then we should do it, right? I mean, we're people, He's God. It makes sense that when He speaks, we should respond. And we, we say that, but at the same time, in the back of, our, back of our minds, we still have Satan's lie whispered into our ears every single day. Did God really say? And that's still attacking the church. We can turn 
the, the, the word of God, God's authority, upside down, replace it with all kinds of teaching that we want to believe. You know, what's the problem with all this? I mean, we live in a world that says, you know, you just believe what you want. I mean, the Bible's not clear anyway, is it? You know, there's so many books on different subjects. I mean, if the Bible was truly clear, that wouldn't be the case, would it? You know, that isn't true. And I think deep down we know that that's not true, that all roads don't lead to God. We know that, we know that all roads don't lead to God. We know that there are people out there that want to deceive us, that want to, that want to lead us away from the truth. But it's so tempting that we would do that. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I wasn't reading those things off earlier on of that list of things as, as, as if to imply that because I believe them that they're true. I wasn't saying that you, sh- you need to believe everything that I tell you as I stand up here. That's not what I'm saying at all. And if I'm wrong in any of those things because of what the Bible says, I want you to come and I want you to challenge me. And that's your duty to do it. But don't base your belief and your thinking on your own thinking or what some other fine preacher has told you. Base what you believe on the Bible. Base it on the Word of God. Study it. Read it. Know it. Learn it. Love it. And let that be the guide, guiding principle of your life. See, there's a danger. We love the Bible in this church. We absolutely do. And we hold the office of preaching in high regard, and we should. But let's not fall into the sin, as many churches have, of placing the preacher above the word of God. I am accountable before God, standing here today, to not lie to you. Not to teach you what you want to hear, but what the word of God clearly teaches. Why are we so prone to turn the word of God upside down. But why, why do we do that? Well, I think the second answer, the second point, might help us understand this. And it's actually Jesus' real answer to, to the Pharisees' questions, and it's this. Evil is from the inside out. Evil is from the inside out. And after exposing the leader's um, t- twisting of God's word, Jesus turns to the crowd and he answers their questions. The premise in the next few verses actually is quite simple, but at the same time, it's revolutionary. Look at verse 14 and 15. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. And later, Jesus repeats this this, this to the disciples in private, but this time in a little more detail. He adds in verse 18, "Um, Are you so dull, he said? Don't you see that nothing enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of their body. What goes through your mouth goes out of your body, right? It doesn't touch your heart, it goes right round it. Okay, it doesn't affect you, it comes out, it does not make you clean. And then marks that little thing at the end, And he says, in saying this, Jesus declares all foods clean. Now that is a radical statement. And we kind of sometimes miss that today because we kind of happily eat all foods. But at the time, that was enormous. That was how you defined um, that you were set apart for God in the Jewish nation, that you wouldn't eat pork and there were certain foods you wouldn't eat and there were certain things you wouldn't touch. And here Jesus says, look, that all had its place. 
But I want you to understand that that will not make you holy. That, that all foods are clean. That will not make you right with God. Because it's a matter of the heart. It may seem to be quite an archaic idea that the Jews, ha- the Jews had to us. The idea that you can be touched by someone and be made unclean and dirty on the inside. The idea that if you were, eat certain foods, that would make you feel dirty. Uh, and that might somehow make you evil. Uh, but we have a very modern twist on such an idea. And it's very, very popular today. It's this idea that the root of evil is not, in, is not people. The idea is that people are basically good. If you boil us down to our root principles, we're quite nice, actually. The problem with us is the systems that we have around us. We find ourselves poor, so we steal. We find ourselves um, being bitter and twisted, and it's because we're uneducated. And what we really need is, 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 a, is people to kind of twi- jiggle around with society to make it so that poverty is eradicated. If, if we just deal with that, then people will be basically nice to each other. Because people are good. And Jesus here challenges that assumption directly. You cannot believe that people are basically good and the words that Jesus teaches here. You cannot hold those two things together. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. No, it's, it's not things out there. It's not things out there that, that affect us and, and make us behave in wrong ways. It comes from within. It comes from our hearts. It's not that that when we lie, it's because somebody has pushed us into a corner. It's because we have evil in our hearts. It's not that when we commit adultery, it's because our partner hasn't loved us in the right way. It's because in our hearts, we're evil. It's not that um, we get angry because that person has pushed us to the point where it's, where it's reasonable to be angry, when we get angry to that, to that extent, it's because the anger is in our hearts. Evil is in our hearts, and it's looking for opportunities to erupt. And the moment that, that we are challenged, and our comfort is taken away, and that we, we've, we're feeling out of control, it erupts, doesn't it? Like someone steals your parking space. Ah, that horrible person. Who do they think they are? I give them what for if they only. Where does that come from? It comes from my heart because there is evil in my heart. It is not that driver's fault. It is my fault. You know, if you believe that people are basically good, let me just ask you a couple of questions. Why do we spend so much time, effort, and money on trying to raise children that behave well? You don't have to teach children to be bad. They just do it naturally. You have to bribe them and twist them and make them go against their will to do the right thing. Why is that? 
Children are not basically good. And don't get, don't get me wrong, I love children. I've had two and I've had another and I want more. Children are fantastic, but it's not because they are perfectly innocent. Children are little usses. That's all they are. And they're a bit more honest than we are, actually. Our hearts are a major problem. And there's another question. If the world is so good, why do we spend so much time and energy and money on laws and police and armies? Why do we always invest in those sorts of things? Because we know, deep down in our core, that people are not basically good. And if we believe that, we're actually denying the evidence in the world around us. Just, but that, you know, they're just a couple of things. But let me bring it right to home here. What about your heart? What about my heart? Because Jesus says, it's from out of our hearts, evil thoughts come. Now just think about this past week. And I'm going to read the list of those evil thoughts that Jesus gave us. And I want you to ask the question, in the quietness of your heart, how have you done on these things this week? How has your thought life been in regards to sexual immorality? How has it been in regards to theft? Maybe not to, you've actually, maybe you're not actually stolen anything, but maybe you've really wanted something desperately. Murder? Well, I hope nobody's committed that this week here. But Jesus says, if you hate your brother wrongfully, you've already committed that sin in your heart. Adultery? Greed? Malice? Deceit? Lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. How did you do? If you're still not convinced, try this week and come and see me next week if you're able to go through a whole week. Your thinking on this subject has tormented me all week. It really has. I've seen it everywhere. I've seen my heart so clearly this week. You know, if you knew the things that I thought this week, you wouldn't want me to be standing here talking to you. If you knew what was going on in the depths of my heart, you would be repulsed in the same way that I am. But it's not just me. It's all of us. It's every human that's ever lived. We have a problem of evil, and the problem is us. The biggest problem you and I face is not from outside. It's not even the devil. The biggest problem that you and I face on a daily basis is the evil which is so natural to our hearts. Evil comes from the inside out. And I know that some of you are struggling to get Christianity. I I, I understand that. You're interested in the idea of Jesus, but this whole thing about death and sin and judgment, it just sounds too extreme. It sounds too harsh. Wouldn't Christianity just be better if we could just do away with that? You're thinking, I I, I like the idea of Jesus, but I'm not comfortable with being labeled a sinner. Now, Now, I can understand where you're coming from on a human level. I genuinely can. I get that it's uncomfortable, but the fact that it's uncomfortable does not make it wrong. And if you edit this out of the words of Jesus, you're you're just left with nullifying everything that he ever taught. We need to listen to Jesus in his entirety. The preacher Dick Lucas, who was here just a month or so ago, puts it this way, unless you take sin seriously, 
you will never take the gospel seriously. Unless you understand how serious the predicament of your heart is, you will never understand God. You will never understand the cross. You will never understand what Jesus has done for you. So our biggest problem is our own heart. We can usually use it to twist God's word. If there's no cure out there in society for the problem of evil, well then what hope is there for us? Well, there is hope, and it's this. Jesus brings the outsider in. Jesus brings the outsider in. In the first part of our message today, we saw a bunch of insiders, the religious teachers. They were the ones who looked right on the outside, but but inside they were all wrong. Um, They they come to Jesus, and Jesus puts them in their place. Um, um, They're hypocrites. But in this next story, we see a woman who looks all wrong on the outside, but Jesus welcomes her in. Well, Jesus is looking for another quiet spot to teach his disciples. But again, like last week, he couldn't find one. In verse 25, it says, In fact, as soon as they heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek and born in Syrophoenicia. And she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Her little girl was being tormented by an evil spirit. And she comes to Jesus desperate. But instead, she, she responds, Jesus responds in a very strange way. And it seems a little bit like out of character for Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 27. First, let the children eat what they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. That's a horrible thing to say, isn't it? Basically saying, you're a dog. That's horrible. Ouch. But we need to look beyond what he says to understand why, what he's doing. And actually Jesus is, is testing her faith and he wants to teach us a lesson about how we need to approach God. See, she replies, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Her reply shows two things. It shows this. This woman has been humbled by her sin. She doesn't say, how dare you call me a dog? How dare you call me a sinner? I thought you were a loving Jesus. Everyone's told me you welcome everyone and you call me a dog. How dare you? She doesn't say that because she knows she's got no ground to stand on. She knows her own sin. She understands that she, she's got no bargaining chips with God. She's got nothing that she can, she can bring to God and say, look what I've done, aren't I good and aren't I noble? Do what I ask you because, you know, I'm good enough. She says, no, you're right. You know, I'm, I, I, in my, there's nothing in me that's worthy. She doesn't defend herself. What, you know, why is Jesus so brutal about the problem of evil in our hearts? Is it to, to, to paint such a big wall that we can never get through it or never climb over it? In one, in, in one sense, that's true. It's, it's not so that we can get over it, but ultimately it's, it's so that we would be humbled and that when we approach God, we'd approach God in the right way. We have nothing to bring. We have no goodness in our own merit that can say, look, God, look what you owe me. Look what I deserve from you. We don't have anything like that. And to approach God in the right way begins there. 
We don't have anything. And we come to God with nothing. We are, we are beggars begging for bread. That's all we are. And that's me as well. It's not just you. It's all of us. I am a sinner. As I've already confessed that this morning, I am a sinner speaking to sinners about the holiness of God. He is brutal to us to humble us so that we might approach God in the right way. We need to see our sin. We need to own our sin and be humbled by it before we approach God. That's the first thing. She's humbled. And the second thing is, this woman knows that Jesus is her only hope. She knows she's unworthy, but still she comes to Jesus. Why? Because he is her only hope. There's nowhere else she can go. Only Jesus' words have the power to get rid of evil from her daughter. Only Jesus can do that. If Jesus won't help her, there's nowhere else to go to. If Jesus won't help her, she is absolutely lost. He is her only resort. And friends, Jesus is yours and mine only resort. There's nowhere else we can go. When we've seen the depth of sin in our hearts, only Jesus can deal with it. Do you realize, well, let me, I was talking about this the other day with, with, with someone from the church. Do you realize how big a problem sin is? You've probably got more of an idea now, maybe, as I've been talking. But do you realize, how much effort did it take to go for God to create the universe? It's no big deal, really, was it? Out of nothing, Jesus created everything. He did, didn't he? He just said, let there be, and then the universe went boom into existence. It was no big deal for God. But for one sinner to be saved, for one sinner like you or I to be rescued and brought into the kingdom of heaven, what did it cost him? He sent his son, Jesus, who we're reading about, to die on a cross, and he had to die. If he didn't die, we couldn't be saved. Do you see the magnitude of the problem of our sin? It is a bigger miracle that anyone can be saved than God could create the universe with a word. It's humongous. Yet he's willing to do it. Jesus is willing to bear the weight of our sin, that universe-shrinking sin on his own shoulders to rescue you and I if, like this woman, we would come to him. If we would just come to him. And he says to her, for such a reply, because you've been so humble, because you've brought your, your problem to the right place, you, go, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and find, found her child lying on a bed, and the demon was gone. With a word, her request is given. And with the cost of his life, we can find forgiveness. The outsider, despite her sin, owns it, brings it to Jesus, and she's brought into the family of God. Are you feeling the burden of sin this morning? Do you really see the depth of sin in your own heart? Not in the person sat next to you, in your heart. Do you feel the weight of that? Well, if you're not a Christian today, let me encourage you. You are, like, you are a sinner like the rest of us, and God is holy, and he is just, 
and one day he is going to judge the world according to his righteousness. Not your righteousness, not my righteousness, but his righteousness. And that's a scary thing. And hell is real. And that is what our sins deserve. But if you come to Jesus this morning, if you bring your sin to Jesus, you will find forgiveness. You will find hope. You will find a renewing of your heart. Come to Jesus today. I plead with you. I plead with you. Come to Jesus before it's too late. There is no hope anywhere else. And if you're a believer today, you don't need to hide your sin to find lots of different things and rules you can follow that will persuade everybody else that really you're okay on the outside, but really on the inside you, you, just, you don't want to be honest with it. God already knows your heart. God knew it before he ever sent Jesus. He knew it before the foundation of the world. He knew how deep our sin was and he willingly sent his son to die for us. You're not going to shock him by bringing your sin to him. He doesn't regret dying for you. He loves you. Yes, we are great sinners, greater than we can ever imagine, but Jesus is an even greater Savior. We read a verse from Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart a heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. That's what Jesus is offering us today. So as we finish, let me just sum up quickly. We have a tendency to turn God's authority upside down, to twist God's word in our own desires and to make, it, to make us look good. And we need to guard against that as a community. Our biggest problem is the evil that comes from inside us and comes out. That's the biggest problem we face. And although, although we deserve to be cast out, although we don't deserve to be accepted, when we come humbly to Jesus, he will forgive us, and his salvation brings the, in, the outsider in. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you and we are humbled by your word. Lord, and if we're not, I pray that you would wake us up. That you would shake us still. Lord, that we wouldn't forget this easily. Lord, this would weigh on our hearts to the point that we have to bring it to Jesus. Lord, I do pray that you would be drawing your people to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.